to the Nature Garden Podcast with me, Carl Steinson, and the Weekending Show team from Lionheart Radio. It's a chance to take a wander down the garden path and country lane with the birds and the bees and the flowers and trees, and an opportunity to hear stories from the past and present. In this episode, we're reflecting on the lockdown and celebrating the unlocking of gardens and nature with Tom Pattinson. Tom Cadwallader is celebrating the curlew's call and the maritime delights of the kittiwake. And more celebration as the Northumberland Wildlife Trust prepares to reopen a wildlife discovery centre. The lockdown is slowly being unlocked. All coming up on the Nature Garden Podcast. It's been a very strange time during the coronavirus lockdown, and now that we're taking our steps towards the new normal, there are anxieties, but there's also cause for celebration. It's a chance to see friends and family again, and to visit places. Well, as long as we still act sensibly. Tom Pattinson has been reflecting upon the lockdown and how it's affected gardeners and horticulture. We recently passed the... 100 days mark since lockdown. Way back in March, we were told by the government or advised by the government to stay at home. Don't go out unless it's essential. Well, of course, the weekly shop was essential, continues to be, and any other exercise, a little bit of exercise each day. Apart from that, we've been at home. And I said at the time, over 100 days ago, we can do this. We've got a garden, we've got an open space outdoors, lots of people haven't. We'll bring it up to scratch. It'll be the best it's been for years. And I could possibly say it came to pass. We spent some time in it. It's been felt safe here and cosy enough. And there hasn't been a will to go outside until recent times. And I'm slightly pleased that they're starting to ease off the lockdown and ease those restrictions because it gives us a chance to go outside if we want to. But in actual fact, truthfully, uh, there's a mentality has come over the last 100 days which makes me feel I'm not sure I want to do that in a hurry. So it's going to take a little while to get back into the old routine 
if it's ever possible to do that. That's a personal point of view. I've also been thinking, though, about those poor businesses that rely on the revenue of opening their gardens to the public. I think of the Annick Garden, Howard Hall Gardens, uh, Cragside, Belsey, and Wallington Hall. Um, I know they could furlough staff, and I know they'd probably keep your skeleton staff on if they did that, which I know they had, did do that with some staff at different places. But, you know, this happened at the worst possible time for gardening. Um, not that it's a good time to have a pan- pandemic or lockdown, but it was spring, the beginning of spring in March. Lots of growth starting off, herbaceous plants, grass to cut, pruning to do, maintenance, regular maintenance, and it's pursued, it's pursued those months all the way into summer. So they've lost revenue. How on earth do they make that up? I know that they're um, starting to open up now, restricted opening, but it's, it's, it's opening, which is good for them. I was also thinking, beyond the businesses, to the organisations, charitable organisations, that uh, entice people, uh, kindly people, to open their gardens for charitable causes. And the big one in the country is the National Garden Scheme, or Yellow Book Scheme, uh, North Northumberland. This area has gardens open under that very scheme. In fact, there's, there's an off-print from the Yellow Book, which I generally pick up each year at the Tourist Information Centre in Annick. And, of course, there's the Red Cross Scheme. They have a, a little booklet as well with their gardens open and a North Northumberland Day Hospice, our, our local hospice. And they, they haven't been able to open, so they haven't gained the revenue they normally gain. Thankfully, they're just starting to open up again. There are also little village groups. I've visited these before. You'd be surprised the number of villages in North Northumberland where one or two keen gardeners will get together and say, now the church needs some funds, or the village hall is short of funds. We need to do certain things, bring it up to date. Let's open our garden to the public for a day or an afternoon in summer. We'll put on teas, uh, coffee, um, scones, etc., We'll have a raffle and we'll, we'll raise some funds. They haven't been able to do that either. So thank goodness we're reaching a stage, hopefully, where they could all do something of this nature to get back to something resembling normal. But you know, the gardens which are just opening up again, the business gardens, I call them, they need to have revenue coming through. They are opening up under restrictive conditions. There are still, there's still the social distancing. Um, then I'm not sure they all can open up shops at the moment. They can't all um, have a cafe for you to go and have a, a some have. I'll pick this up in, in the second piece I have in mind this afternoon. But they're under restrictions. You have to book in advance. You can't just turn up and say, here's my money, let me in. You have to book in advance online. And there are time slots with a limited number of people in each slot. So if you're going out to start visiting gardens again, under these conditions, be prepared.
The curlew is a bird of distinction with an evocative call, a long down-curved bill, and the poet Robert Burns aptly described it as being lang-leggedy. It's a bird that is celebrated by many a writer. Philip Glazier of Selkirk believed the curlew's song is far better than any old nightingale. Others say that its weeple is mournful, and farmers celebrate its arrival on the moors in spring. Birda Tom Cadwallander from the British Trust for Ornithology can tell us more about the curlew. If you've ever been to Northumberland National Park, you should know exactly what a curlew is. Uh, a curlew is, of course, uh, a long-billed wading bird, but it's also the emblem of Northumberland National Park. So you'll see it on signs everywhere. You see it on all the interpretive panels and and so forth. So you kind of uh, you'll get the subliminal message of about what a curlew is about. And the reason why the National Park went for uh, for curlew is that it's it's a bird of the uh, during the breeding season, it's the bird of the of, of uplands. They breed in the uh, the wet meadows and, uh, and and wet pastures of inland Northumberland and particularly in Northumberland National Park. And who could fail to be impressed by the display call, the display flight of of the curlew? It's as it echoes across the kind of the, the hillsides and into valleys and so forth, it really captures the imagination. Oh, I just, I just love it. It's one of the, the truly kind of Northumbrian things uh, yeah, that really get you, you know. It's, it's, uh, it brings you home and you kind of hear it, you kind of know you're, you're kind of uh, in the uplands of Northumberland, in fact, any real uplands, to be honest. Um, but they are, they're quite something. I, I really enjoy them. And they, they, they breed in, in the uplands, but unfortunately the, the breeding population is in some bit of a decline, actually, because of the change in agricultural practices and, uh, and there's fewer wet meadows, of course, for them to, to, to breed. You know, when you see the bird, it's it's a it's quite a tall bird. It'll stand about fourteen inches high. It's got this long, decurved bill, so it needs to have wet ground to be able to uh, to probe into to to feed. Uh, and when the ground dries out, it obviously can't can't feed. So it's it's kind of restricted that way. Uh, so it's a real issue. But away from the breeding season, we find a lot of the a lot of curlew on the on the coast, but it's not necessarily the ones that we have breeding inland because the inland breeders um, will disappear, will head off uh, on their migration um, to the south and south and west, and perhaps even into the Iberian Peninsula for the winter time. And so the uh, the ones we find on the coast are generally tend to be from northern Scandinavia and points north. So they will come down and feed on the, uh, on the, uh, on the estuaries, the muddy estuaries that we have along our bit of coastline, and in fact, right around the, the, the country. As I mentioned, the curlew is a, is a, a fantastically cryptically plumaged bird. Uh, they, they need to be cryptically plumaged because they're ground nesters and they're, so they, they, they have their, their bit of protection. But they're quite distinctive, as I've mentioned. They've got quite, uh, they're quite tall. They've got long legs. But their bill is is a great sort of decurved sort of big sweep of of, uh, uh, of of a bill, which enables them to to probe quite a long way into the uh, into the mud to feed on their prey, which will be kind of lugworms and that sort of thing. But it's worth remembering that you can actually sex 
the curlew by the length of their bill. Not not all of them, of course, because um, the, the the longest billed birds are the females, and uh, the the longest billed birds can really stand out. It's hard to detect the males, but the, we know the the the, the long billed ones are the females. So as I mentioned, the the uh, uh, the the winter population uh, is from an area north of uh, Scandinavia and points north. So they'll they'll start coming into uh, the UK any time from end of June onwards. In fact, now there are birds sort of piling in on the Alne Estuary, where I spend a lot of time. There are about sort of uh, 40 to 50 birds. Um, some of them have been there all year. They just haven't gone back to their to their breeding grounds in the north because of one thing or another. They might be just too young to breed or they're just non-breeding birds for this year because they're relatively long-lived. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll get to 25 years old and so they don't have to breed every year and perhaps they don't breed every year. And it's worth rem- remembering at this point that migration is quite an expensive business and, and if they don't have to go they, they will not make this this great journey on their uh, for, for their returning to their breeding grounds and so they'll these birds will be uh, sort of hanging around as I say they've had the birds since kind of uh, most of the summer um, but we with the population is now building on the coast and on the Al Nestry we, we've got sort of um, we'll build up to perhaps two to three hundred birds which is quite significant for for such a small estuary. But at Lindisfarne, uh, with a with the vast mudflats of the National Nature Reserve, you can get up to oh uh, easily um, five to a thousand birds there quite quite readily, and um, and they're they're quite something to behold. And you do hear them make this call their their um, their call of the 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 <whistles> call during the winter time as well. So it's not just a, a breeding display. Um, but it's 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 quite something, and it's worth persevering to go out to have a look at these these birds, or even just to listen to them. Man, they really capture your imagination, and you know that that's that's something quite quite exciting's going on there. It's brilliant, absolutely wonderful. Curlews are just sort of uh, are just out of this world. Uh, yes, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, they travel quite a long way to winter with us, uh, whilst the breeders are uh, have uh, travelled south from here. Anyway, that's the curlew. This is the Nature Garden Podcast. A few weeks back, we heard from Anthony at the Nature Reserve at Hawksley, Northumberland, who told us about how well wildlife was doing there during the lockdown. And now, well, let's embrace the joy. There's some great news for us people. CEO for Northumberland Wildlife Trust, Mike Pratt, can tell us more. Well, I'm sitting here just outside the uh, visitor centre up at Hawksley uh, with much anticipation because we're actually uh, opening the the centre again after obviously having to close down uh, throughout lockdown. And next week we're really opening the the centre to the whole of the public. But of course people have got to be cautious still, we've put lots of measures in place and we've also put in measures uh, and a booking system so that people can actually be assured that there's not hordes of people there and they can actually enjoy uh, the visit and be very confident that they're actually safe uh, when they come back to see Hawksley. It is a fantastic feeling to be able to reopen after the lockdown period which has actually been really damaging to most charities and yet the Northumberland Wildlife Trust has risen above that and we have been able to carry on 
some of our business and we've I think survived pretty well but we're desperate for to see people back here and we hope that people actually will donate to us as well when they visit in recognition of the fact that we've lost so much income this is a really fantastic discovery centre that people really love to visit and I'm glad to say that the wildlife has actually flourished during lockdown and there's plenty to see and experience providing us all with a much needed extra boost of nature therapy so I hope we get plenty of people to come back and rediscover the Hawksley magic. It has been a challenge. Uh, we've got limited resources uh, currently available uh, and funding has been lost. But we want to see people back enjoying what Hawksley is all about. All that wildlife right on the doorstep on the coast of Northumberland. And uh, we hope to see you and I hope to see you there next week. If someone had told us in December that most public gardens, heritage sites, entertainment venues and gardening centres would be closed by Easter, we would have shaken our heads in disbelief. It still seems hard to believe how things changed over the last few months. Earlier on, Tom was reflecting on the lockdown experience. A tricky time when the increasing importance of nature, green space and gardens has become clear. Well. Tom has been taking his first steps towards visiting open gardens. How exciting is that? And he's going to tell us about some of the wonderful places he's been to and update us on how some of our famous Northumberland sites are opening up. Please do tell us more, Tom. Well, Carl, we did step a little bit outside our comfort zone uh, last weekend on Sunday just before Sunday, I'd had a text from a couple of friends in Craster saying they'd talk three of their neighbours into opening their gardens under the National Garden Scheme, Yellow Book Scheme, and that we had to book online if we wanted to go. So I hadn't fancied leaving and visit going so far away. I mean, Craster from here, it must be at least about five or six miles from, from uh, Lesbury. <laughs> but <laughs> I did apprehensive but I went but what helped was we'd managed to book a slot at uh, lunchtime for one hour and there was a maximum of 20 people allowed in each slot so imagine 20 people sharing between four gardens for one hour we barely saw anybody it was delightful as were the gardens we parked in the quarry car park on the outskirts just to the right outside the village walked five minutes uh, turning left at the harbour, and we were there. And these gardens were all together, more or less, little cluster, beautiful. Two were linear in shape, and they ran uphill, away from the harbour. And the higher we got up, the better view of the sea we had. Really good. And in those gardens were, goodness, there were such beautiful flowers, roses in full bloom, mixed herbaceous perennials, annuals, etc. A little woodland even, and ponds. And one of them had a long, uh, mature, rugosa rose, which is brilliant for the seaside, hedge, running down with pink and white flowers. Just beautiful. Saw those two saw another two close by, smaller gardens, but interesting. Each of the four was different. And within that hour, had it wrapped up, good experience, and went off back to the car and home. 
Now that's given us a little bit of confidence. So uh, since I got home, I've been online and I've been checking up on our local gardens. Four I mentioned in the previous piece, or five I mentioned in the previous piece. Um, the Anna Garden was the start, and all of them are open again, by the way. Uh, rather restricted, the conditions going in there, rather restrictive, um, but they're open and that's good. Uh, the Anna Garden... Uh, the, the garden's open, the mini golf's open. Uh, for food, there's the bakery, which gives, which uh, you can buy takeaways. Uh, the toilets are open. Uh, there's a bit of additional outdoor seating there now. And uh, you can picnic on the main lawn area. And there's hand sanitizer throughout the garden, which, which is a good point. Um, you've got to book in advance, of course. Go online, book a slot in advance, and it's all coming together there. Look forward to getting back in there again. We're also members of the National Trust and uh, there are two local ones, Wallington Hall and Cragside, which we like to visit. So the, the um, Wallington Hall, uh, they, the car park's open, of course, and the countryside surrounding, the walled garden, the woodland, there's a cycle trail and uh, the courtyard toilets are open, but there's no house available, uh, the cafe isn't open, nor the shop. So... Beware of that if you're prepared, if you're wanting to go to visit Wallington. Um, you've got to book an advance, of course. Uh, members are getting free, but we've still got to book an advance. And you pay on pay when you book online. And, of course, there's no booking, as with all of them, no entry. So get in there in good time if you want to plan a visit. Now, Cragside... Um, the garden, the formal garden isn't open, but the rest is. Uh, the woodland, of course, is there and the carriage drive. Um, you've got to book for that by 3pm on the day before visiting. And there are timed visits, timed slots. OK, and uh, members of the National Trust, of course, don't pay, but you've still got a book there. And the non-members pay on booking. Uh, the toilets are open there, but there's no catering or, or shop and you can't get into the house at the moment. That's Cragside. That's a, the two um, National Trust properties. Uh, Howick Hall Gardens, locally, uh, the, you've got to ring the office to check the current status of numbers. Uh, it's on 01665 577191. Uh, the car park is open and you enter the little office there uh, off the car park uh, and pay with a, a, a card or contactless payment. Uh, season ticket holders show their season ticket, of course. The garden is open. The arboretum is open. Uh, then no, the Earl Grey tea rooms are not, unfortunately. Uh, a visitor centre is also closed at the moment, so they're advising you take a picnic with you. What better than a picnic in the grounds of Howick Hall? The toilets are open, of course. And then, finally, locally, onto Belsey Hall Castle and Gardens. That's English Heritage. Uh, they're open too, of course. Uh, you've got to book in advance for a, a time slot, as with most of the others. Um, uh, members um, getting free, but you've still got a book. Um, there's a takeaway food from the cafe, which is a good thing. And it said the shop is open and uh, safety procedures are in place. And, of course, that applies to all of them. Um, one thought is, if you're going there, you, you book in advance, of course, but one thought is, and it has to be uh, first and foremost to us, uh, this is a check that I've just done 
but everything happens so quickly at the moment with this um, pandemic and directions from the government. Please check that nothing has changed uh, following me, me giving you this advice, okay? But go there and enjoy them. We're starting to get a little bit more adventurous at the moment, but by gosh, we're still very careful. The kittiwake is a bird that loves a place to dwell with a view. Preferably quite a high view. A view of the sea, in fact. Although in terms of the ones in Newcastle Gateshead, they love the view of the River Tyne from the Tyne Bridge. Tom Cadwallader is on the ledge with the kittiwake. You know, Carl, how we've often joked about uh, the words or the name seagull, and here's me saying there's no such thing as a seagull because... We find most of the gulls in land, and so they kind of be they should be just called gulls. However, there is a, a pair of uh, of gulls which the name could actually be attached to. The name seagull could be attached to. Now, kittiwakes. Uh, there are two species of kittiwakes in the world. Um, one is the red-legged kittiwake, and that's found in the North Pacific. In fact, it's found nowhere else but the North Pacific because it's quite a range restric- restricted species. And the other one is the black-legged kittiwake, which is the one that we have, and it kind of it's 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 found around quite a lot of the the uh, the northern hemisphere, um, away from the North Pacific. And as the name suggests, it has black legs, but it's found really by the sea, and it's not it doesn't come in land very often. In fact, you you rarely see it in land. I've never seen one in land, apart from the colony in Newcastle. Newcastle Gateshead and they're nesting on the Baltic and nesting on the bridges and nesting on one or two buildings in there and there's a there's a decent sort of uh, uh, population of of them and the popula- and the population is quite uh, is growing just ever so slightly and it's something to rejoice that the, the fact we have um, these birds so far uh, inland right in the city center and it's it's to be rejoiced it's absolutely fantastic but it's renowned as the across the world as being the uh, the furthest inland breeding colony of of kittiwakes. But anyway, uh, the kittiwake is a uh, oh an elegant looking gull. It's 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 beautiful. I think it's one of my real favourites. And uh, as as I've mentioned before, that it has black legs, um, but the underparts and head are just this kind of gleaming white, contrasting with this um, black eye, and it's got a, a lemon yellow bill. And its wings are a, a grey, um, a quite sort of an interesting sort of silvery grey, um, which then sort of merges into a white. Then right at the end of the wings, there's this kind of dipped in ink, sort of black right there. And it's sort of just a contrasty thing. Uh, and to see them flying, and uh, just, it's just wonderful. They're about the size of, a, uh, of black-headed gulls, perhaps a little bit bigger. But they are, they kind of, uh, they, they fit into that niche as a small gull quite nicely. And they're named because of their call. It's onomatic peg. So they make the call is kitty, 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 wake, kitty, wake, kitty, 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 I think it's quite evocative, really. It's quite something. And they, they tend to nest in colonies. And you see them sort of uh, in, in quite big colonies in some places. And the noise is absolutely deafening and it really is evocative of of uh, of, the, of the coast it really conjures up all sorts of images in my mind oh it's 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 uh, terrific so they they nest on ledges and that's why they've made this little uh, foothold into the uh, the Newcastle city center which is quite interesting 
Uh, they nest in the uh, on Cocod Island. There's only small cliffs on Cocod Island as well, quite small, perhaps about um, 15 feet, perhaps 20 feet max on Cocod, but they're on there. They've managed to find uh, a, a foothold on these ledges, but they're in uh, uh, on the, the, the Farne Islands, quite famously on the Farne Islands. Um, they're on Howick Cliffs, Cullinus Point, Dunstanborough, Sea Houses, and indeed um, just north of Berwick at Needle's Eye. There's a big colony there. There's about sort of oh, about three hundred and fifty thousand pairs of these birds in the UK, and um, and Northumberland has a, a really good uh, a good lump of those. We've got about ten thousand pairs in um, in Northumberland breeding every year, uh, and the UK has about eight percent of the world population of kittiwakes so it's it's quite significant um but you'd expect that for a for a, a, a coastal country like ours um it's quite something for me they're, they're, they're just one of the the, the the top species they spend all their time at sea as i've mentioned and they'll feed on uh on sand eels like some of the terns do in fact all the terns do and some of the oak species uh, and they'll they'll fly out to an area about 40 kilometers off the north of Thumbland coast uh, called the Farn Deeps. And so all of the kittiwakes that we have, even the ones that are nesting in Newcastle Quayside, will fly out to the Farn Deeps on a, on a daily basis to collect food to bring back for their young ones. And they tend only to have one young in their nest, um, but it's, uh, they, they will go and feed them on this, this particular food. And that's kind of contributing to their, their gradual decline, although some colonies are, are, are remaining stable, uh, there is this kind of um, general decline in, in the population because of the, the threat to a lot of their, their food supply. They are, they are red uh, listed uh, in the species of, of conservation concern. So, you know, it, it, there, is some, there are some big issues there. No two ways about it. But yes, a seagull, yes, they're, they're, as soon as they finish their, their nesting, um, they'll head off out to sea. And it has been recorded that uh, one or two individuals have been found in Greenland uh, one or two, um, about six weeks after uh, they've left the nest. So really, they spend all their time out at sea. They're completely pelagic, as they say. Um, they're absolutely tremendous. So they do fit the bill quite nicely. They are a genuine seagull. I think it's time for some jobs for the week from Tom, and I think he's been busy again. How's it going there, Tom? What's on the agenda this week? Here are some of the jobs I'll be undertaking in my garden in the coming week. Uh, There's a lot of soft growth on plants out there, fuchsia, penstemon, Uh, the rosemary and sage, the herbs, and the garden pinks. And I know that if I take those pieces of stem, the soft growths, about 10 centimetres long, and dress them down, it's really undressing them. You leave a cluster of leaves on the top, and you rub out the other leaves, and you soak them, or immerse them in a bowl of water for a couple of hours, so they're fully charged with water, and uh, you then put them in as softwood stem cuttings into a gritty compost or even stand them in a tumbler of water. Keep the water fresh until they root. There's so many plants that 
put so much plant material at the moment, plants for free if you root those stems. I'm looking at the tomatoes as well. It's an ongoing thing. I fed them this morning so I don't have to feed them again until next week, next Saturday. But I'm watering them twice daily at the moment. I'm tapping the canes that support them to help the aid the um, pollen, pollination uh, process. I'm rubbing out side shoots and those little side shoots you rub out from tomatoes. If you want to root those, they will root in compost, gritty compost or in water. Then you can put them on and keep them growing on and you'll get one or two tomatoes, two tomatoes extra before the end of the season. I'm definitely checking the nets on the fruit every day because there have been one or two strong winds recently and they've dislodged a couple of nets on the raspberries and the gooseberries. Luckily, both are just ripening, so there was no uh, bird damage in there. They're not grabbing them. But the strawberries, I'm watching very carefully because they're ripe. We're harvesting at the moment. They've got nets on and the black currants and red currants, they're just ripening. Check your nets every day in the garden if you've got them on your fruit. That's the soft fruits. I'm going to start cutting the hedge in a few days time because we're into July now and I've seen no evidence of birds going in to feed young and I think all of the roots have gone. I'll double check before I start and proceed with caution and of course I'll be uh, giving it a little bit of a gentle thrush before I start cutting just to make sure there are no wasps nests in there don't want any unpleasant surprises I'm looking in the greenhouse at the potted plants and if they've been standing all winter long in the same pot and the same compost uh, and it's the same compost that they grew in last year they need some fruit from somewhere so you've got two options you can either remove them from that pot, tease the roots about gently and put them into a slightly bigger pot with fresh compost. If you want them to stay in the same pot, then rather than change the pot and the compost, you can start feeding them. So they're getting some fruit from somewhere. I must do that to one or two, especially the pelagoniums, commonly called geraniums, but the potted pelagoniums need that sort of treatment. Look around your pot plants and ask the question of yourself, when did they last have some food? Because they'll have used it all up and the old compost. I'm weeding, weeding, weeding at the moment. They're just growing like wildfire in the vegetable plot and other parts of the garden. Yeah, you've got to keep on top of them because, as I've said before, they're taking up precious moisture and precious food that the cultivated plants should be taking and they're harbouring garden pests and the other one is water 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 not just the tomatoes and other things inside under the glass but plants outside don't let your containers dry out that's the containers with your beautiful um, summer display half hardy annuals in I'm sowing successional crops as well. I've just sown some, yet some more uh, leaf salad, leaf lettuce crops and more of the French breakfast radish. Um, they soon uh, age in the garden, grow on or we use them up and it's lovely to keep them going. I'm sowing at fortnightly intervals, doesn't cost much and it's really worthwhile. I've started digging the early potatoes and I'll keep it up, but I'm still on the lookout for potato blight. 
and if potato blight arrives, there'll be a yellowing of some leaves and a collapse of just one plant in amongst otherwise healthy plants. And if that happens, dig it straight out, use the potatoes, dispose of the tomato horn, the, the foliage or shore as we call it locally, dispose of it thoughtfully, not on the compost heap. That's your jobs for the weeks, folks. Enjoy your gardening. You've been listening to the Nature Garden Podcast with me, Carl Steinson, gardener Tom Pattinson, Tom Cadwallander from the British Trust for Ornithology, and Mike Pratt, CEO for the Northumberland Wildlife Trust. Check out our website at allthews.naturegardennotebook.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Gardeners Radio and at Tom Cadwallander. Please do join us again next week. In the meantime, enjoy your gardens and nature. Bye for now.